Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Those of you who follow Canadian politics will know that we are in the midst of a leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada. I was a member of the Conservative Party a while ago because I wanted to vote for the last leader because, of course, as a pro-lifer, as a social conservative, what I want to do is see somebody at the helm of the Conservative Party that will promote these values. We did not, unfortunately, have that the last time around. We had a leader, Aaron O'Toole, who only promised one uh, policy that was remotely socially conservative, and that was the protection of conscience rights. And it took an, a single interrogation by one mainstream journalist uh, to cause him to walk back his position on conscience rights. And he was actively hostile to the role of social conservatives in the Conservative Party of Canada. And as a result of the Freedom Convoy, he ended up getting booted from leadership. Uh, but as Jojo Ruba noted in, in last week's podcast, it wasn't just the Freedom Convoy. It was also his position on socially conservative issues like the conversion therapy ban, which uh, Aaron O'Toole orchestrated to pass through the House of Commons and probably the Senate as well uh, unanimously. So we're now facing a leadership race again. A lot of people are very cynical about their politicians right now, which is something I totally understand. Uh, those who have listened to this podcast regularly or read my column on LifeSite News or read my columns over at thebridgehead.ca will know that I have been a fan of Dr. Leslie Lewis for quite some time. She was uh, one of the candidates uh, running for leadership last time around, got the highest popular vote actually, and she is running this time around again. And what I wanted to do today is just have a discussion about somebody who knows the ins and outs of Canadian politics quite well, and uh, kind of give people a glimpse inside the scenes of a leader's office or a leader of the official opposition's office. And so I, I called up my friend uh, Josh Gilman. He's been on the podcast before. I've done a lot of work with him over the years on the issues of pornography and sexual exploitation. Uh, we both spoke on behalf of an organization called Strength of Fight, which hosted a major anti-porn conference in Ottawa that had experts from, from all over the world come in uh, and give their take. Uh, Josh Gilman, in addition to doing all of that work, has also uh, worked for Andrew Scheer. Uh, he has worked for Leslin Lewis. And so he has a pretty good idea what goes on behind the scenes during uh, these meetings uh, when it comes to trying to hammer out communications and what a leadership race looks like. And so just to give people a better idea of what's going on, I decided to, to give him a call. And this is our conversation. All right, Josh, you've been on this podcast once before. I believe the last time we were having a discussion, it was on the impact of the Kavanaugh hearings. The Brett Kavanaugh hearings, it seems like 100 yes. years ago now. Oh, my on, word. <laughs> on the divisions in the anti-porn <laughs> movement, because we've both done a lot of anti-porn work together. So uh, tell the listeners what you've been up to since then, or just introduce yourself for those who don't know you. Yeah, um, so I've done, I've done a lot of different things in the anti-sexual exploitation world. Um, I also have been a uh, political speechwriter and communications consultant for years, and maybe people think that's a weird blend. Um, the thing I'm most excited about in, in my life that I've accomplished over the last year was putting out a book called The King's Daughter, which is a message that I wanted to put in father's hands to communicate to daughters navigating this pornified world about their value and self-worth. And quite frankly, I wanted to help parents start to think through the conversations they have to have in a world where, where abuse is, is so prevalent. 
Um, and so that that's the biggest thing that that I have uh, accomplished in the last year to see I, that actually get published. Others, and I assume other than the roughly dozen children you've had since we talked last. Those weren't a, a solo project uh, <laughs> in terms of seeing seeing them grow up and flourish and hopefully be contributing members to society. Um, <laughs> this is, I say, what I accomplished because I think when I see my children uh, becoming hopefully the amazing people they will be, I don't really feel like taking a ton of credit for that, but Fair the enough. book, uh, the book was mostly me uh, in terms of putting that together. Although um, I have to say also a huge shout out to my friend, Jeff Frizzle, who did the illustrations and is the reason why it's absolutely a gorgeous book. So how's it doing so far? What's been the reaction to the book at this point? It's been very, very good. I'm very happy to see that it's having the intent that I wanted, which is that I'm getting messages and emails from fathers who are saying that their daughter just loves um, them reading it to them. Um, and, and so for me, making that connection, again, it's putting a tool in the hands of fathers uh, to have that communication with their daughters. I always said my, my biggest role as a dad is that when some, you know, some idiot and I mean that in the most intense way possible, <laughs> says to my daughters, you know, hey, baby, uh, no one loves you like I do. I want my daughters to laugh in their face. Just laugh. Like I want them to almost sit down on the ground laughing because they know it's just not true. <laughs> um, and so if this can help other fathers make a connection with their daughters, um, and if it can also help them start to think through some of the challenges, quite frankly, of raising um, children in this broken world, then, then I'll be really happy. And so far it's been, it's been a really strong response in that way. Okay. So we'll return to the book and let listeners know where they can get it at the end of the show when we're going to talk about some of the encouraging things in politics. But I, I just want to kind of to start off by having a discussion about Canadian politics with you, because one of the interesting things we've seen in the last couple of years is that an enormous number of people who have never engaged in politics before have suddenly discovered that politics cares about them even if they don't care about it. And so one of the reasons, for example, you've seen a lot of conspiracy theories around is because people who don't know how our system works or how Westminster parliamentary democracy works are being introduced to politics for the first time. I was talking to a couple of MPs the other day who said, I'm sympathetic by people who uh, have um, some of these conspiracy theories and some of the concerns they're rooted in. But he's like this idea that we're helpless in the face of this huge machine actually creates a kind of very counterproductive despair where people aren't actually engaging in the sorts of practices that can make real and effective change. So you've worked for, for Andrew Scheer, you've worked for Dr. Leslin Lewis, who's a current conservative leadership candidate. Uh, maybe just start off by giving uh, an inside view of Canadian politics to the listeners and we'll go from there. Politics is, is very interesting. And, and for me, uh, I, I was obsessed with politics by like the age of 14 or when I'm younger, I think. Um, and, and I always told people like when I got to, when I got to be part of the national campaign in 2019, um, it's, it's like when other kids make it to the NHL for the first time, that, that was my NHL, uh, to, to actually be a part of a national campaign on that level. And so I'm just been, I've just been a political nerd forever. And even I was shocked when I first started, um, entering into working in politics, 
it's it's just it's such a big machine and it's really hard for people to understand until you're in it and so like you said like it's it's understandable why some of the stuff seems like conspiracy because there's just these huge huge machines like i worked at one point in um for the minister of immigration and there's tens of thousands of people in that department and there's so many things moving that that it's it's difficult to to see from the outside how decisions are made, why they're made, um, why ministers sometimes make statements that maybe don't make any sense to us because we just, the amount of information going around and the amount of considerations. And then you think about the hundreds of thousands of policymakers, quite frankly, bureaucrats at every level who are just trying to do their job. And then you mix in these political parties and then the MPs are a whole separate entity from all of that. And when people would come to me and say, you know, why did, why did Andrew Shear do this? Why did he say this? Why did anything? And, and trying to break that down for people when you have all these different moving parts, it is, it's difficult and it's difficult to, it's a challenge to communicate. It's why it is a challenge um, from being on the inside because it all makes sense to you when you're in the middle of it um, and to, to communicate that. And social media really has made it so much worse because to communicate that through 280 characters is actually impossible. Um, and so and so a lot of mistakes are made trying to communicate in that way. Um, and, and when you see things just happen in what seems like a really quick way, when the stuff is going through this just giant machine, uh, yeah, I understand why some things look like it must be conspiracy because it makes no sense from the outside. So let's get more specific because when when I say that there's you know some conspiracies and you say this great giant machine, it sounds like you're affirming that rather than specifically rebutting it. So <laughs> for an ordinary voter who looks at Ottawa and says, you know, like like what are the chances that anybody can make change? So let's take the the answer of the um the example of Andrew Shear just because his leadership campaign is long over. Uh, his, uh, his his leadership tenure is is now long over. We're going to be two leaders away from him pretty quickly here, and so an autopsy is a little bit more possible. Now, the thing about Andrew Scheer, right, is that is that he he got votes from almost every faction of the Conservative Party, uh, from the Libertarians, from the Social Conservatives, um, and at the same time, he seemed to manage to keep very few people happy when when push came to shove. What would your perspective as an insider be on how people viewed Andrew Scheer and the team versus what it was actually like? Yeah, so that goes back to what I what I said. I'll, I'll try to make it a little bit more clear. It's like, so people from the outside, you see Andrew Scheer, right? And that's all you see as a voter. There's Andrew Scheer. Mm-hmm. Andrew Scheer, though, is one, there's Andrew Scheer, the person. Then you have a staff in the leader's office. That's about 80 to 100 people. Uh, far more if you're all the different organizers and such across the country who's supposed to be working for him. So about a hundred other people and they're all doing work on his behalf in a million different areas. They're also Andrew Shear. Then you have the party, like the official party, because the, the Andrew Shear or the conservative party that's on the Hill rather versus a conservative party that is the official political party. They're technically two separate entities and you have people who are running the electoral districts and the candidates and the things, and those are also perceived as Andrew Scheer. And then you have the MPs in the House of Commons. And because he's the leader, everything they say is now Andrew Scheer. Um, and then you, you have, you have a, a board of the party. 
and everything is seen as Andrew Shear. And so this is where I say like, it's extremely difficult because we're all trying to work together. And the challenge of making that very well communicated is, is it's difficult. And I always tell people like one of the hardest things in politics is you get enough people in any room and someone is gonna have a concern about something. So sometimes, and, and again, like I, I wasn't in all necessarily these rooms, I was on the like communication side. So then I would have to deal with what was coming out of a room. And so to sometimes be on the, okay, we have an idea and then watch an idea go through a lot of people it's really hard for the idea to come out strong on the other side. And like, right, I, I right. personally, I'm not afraid. I've said it publicly before. Like I, I think the world of Andrew Shear. Um, he was quite frankly, I learned a ton from him as not just as a political person, the guy is an incredible husband and father. Um, he's a brilliant writer. I grew as a person working closely with him in, in incredible ways, but I would say the, the structure of, just the the nature of all those factions it was it was always a challenge to make sure that what the public was seeing Andrew Shear is or Andrew Shear says reflecting who Andrew Shear actually is mm-hmm. and thinks and says it's a huge challenge it's not just a challenge to say oh well um and I'm not saying any like I'm not going to really debate or whether or not he personally said things well or not <laughs> like that's for other people to decide but in terms of uh, the system that's trying to take a person and their thoughts and who they are and spread that to a country, that's a real challenge. And I'll say like, you can talk to anybody on the Hill and they'll say, yeah, like things, one of the challenges uh, any leader of our party will face going forward is like, obviously there needs to be a, a better job of, of getting the thoughts and ideas out to the Canadian people. Um, we tend to, I believe, have better policies than the other parties. Um, and we tend to sometimes struggle on, on that side. And some of it is just how do we navigate um, the modern communication in, in a clear way when we tend to be like our problem on the conservative party is we tend to be policy nerds. And, and so we, we sit around and debate with each other instead of actually communicating sometimes. Yeah. And let's narrow that down like a little bit further because when we're like, because one of the things that I think that sometimes politicos, which would include political hacks, political commentators, political pundits, political comm staffers like yourself, and then the actual politicians, don't realize the full extent of how frustrating what you've just described is for the ordinary voter. Because a lot of ordinary voters will listen to everything you just said. And say, okay, so Andrew Shear believes what he believes, and you can fill in Andrew Shear's name with any, um, with with, with yeah. any leader. Um, he's just the one we happen to be talking about right now, and, and he has to figure out how to make that palatable to the greatest number of people. And, and the key frustration too, right, is I one hundred fully percent believe that Andrew Shear is a pro-life person. I believe he is he is personally convicted about social conservative values. You know, he's a faithful attender of church, etc. Um, and his inability to answer questions clearly on that just made everybody suspicious because pro-lifers are like, oh, is he a Patrick Brown type? Is he going to sell us out? And on the other side, they were like, oh, yeah, no, he obviously does hold these convictions. What's he going to do with them? You know what I mean? So 
to what extent does the actual leader who is being represented by all of these different groups that you've just described, you just described all these different people who are Andrew Scheer in the public sphere, um, again, just using his name interchangeably, to what extent is it the leader's responsibility to step in and saying, you're saying things on behalf of me that don't actually reflect me, and I'm not going to have my life run by calm staffers because we've seen multiple leaders do this right um aaron aaron o'toole i had no idea what he believed about anything uh, and he didn't either yet he was waiting for somebody to tell him as a result of polling data right um basically it was sort of like you know government government by by focus group so to what extent can the leader step in and take control of his own comms or if I'm, i know it's possible how rare is it <laughs> well, first of all, because I'm still in the political world, uh, I will just everything you say is your words. And, and um, what's the like disclaimer? Like the, everything I say does not reflect my employer or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that you're speaking just, entirely yeah. for yourself. <laughs> I mean, for myself and you're speaking for yourself. I, uh, I think an interesting thing, just I'll back up for one second, is okay. I, so I went from being on the campaign in 2019 to during the last election, driving in an RV with my family across the entire country during the race. Um, and it was very interesting to, I still had a ton of friends who were working in the war room or everything and hearing all about what was going on. But being from that, um, being from not like as inside as you could possibly get to then being on the outside and seeing the disconnect with Canadians. And this is not the Conservative Party, like in general. Even go like, because one of the problems is that when you're in politics, and I'm again speaking for myself, but I'm just imagining many people would agree with me. Like, we pay, you're paying attention to everything. You're on Twitter all day. Every single thing the leader says, you know that he said it. You know, everything that Justin Trudeau said to Jagmeet Singh, like everything. You are what you could not have more context. And so then you get frustrated sometimes when you see people not believing that you are sincere this because in your mind you gave this whole speech and and one of the challenges for me being in politics was to remember the perspective i got being out of it like i was not doing anything during the campaign and hearing from my friends oh we had this great event and being like yeah so everyone over here in uh yeah um this rv park that i'm currently parked in they don't know there's an election like we're two weeks into the campaign and I said, oh yeah, something about the election. They're like, oh, there's an election. So, so then maybe all they're hearing and is maybe a 30 second clip. And so it's, it's similar, like you, you do public speaking. Do you ever get bored with your own speeches? Well, I've, I've been doing the same strategy talk because the, like the strategy hasn't changed on the history of social reform for quite a while. Cause I unfortunately can't go back and spice things up. So yeah, I get, I, I can hear myself giving the speech sometimes. And sometimes you're going, this is the most like, why am I even bothering? Like, this can't be interesting. And meanwhile, the people are looking at you with like shock on their faces. They've never heard this before. It's all new. Yeah. And so, so from it's like, it, it was the same thing when I, I used to work in radio broadcasting, I worked in news to remember that you might read a story 10 times in one day. Every time you read it, most of the people are hearing it for the first time. So that's a challenge in so many fields. And that's a challenge in politics is to, to make that connection. And so again, like I will say, I, I, I've watched Andrew Scheer um, very closely. 
at, I, I worked what because as soon as the leadership race ended last time, my employer was still the leader's office. Uh, and so I was back under Aaron O'Toole for a brief period of time. Uh, I worked on Lessons Campaign, Lesson Lewis's campaign last time. Like I've, I've seen a lot of these things from the inside. And like a lot of this is just the nature of our, of the beast, the beast being politics. How do we take so much context and communicate it? Um, and I think the biggest thing, like when people, um, when, when people are able to communicate is generally when they are being 100% authentic. And uh, that's not just in, um, is he being honest with me? But it's making sure that they're speaking to things that they truly not just believe, but understand because it's close to their heart. And it doesn't mean like, like no leader can, can understand everything. So no leader can, can have every single topic understand it all. And so this is actually where it really comes down to a lot of us as the staffers to encourage them to say, okay, you, you believe all these things. These are all stuff that you, that you know and believe in, and it's authentically your, your beliefs. But these are the issues that are so close to your heart that it just comes through so much stronger. You'll never need notes. You'll never need stats. You'll never need piles of background sheets to communicate it. You'll, you'll, um, you'll be able to just communicate it so clearly and succinctly because it's real close to your heart. One of the worst things I did as a staffer was actually push Andrew Shear to try to speak on this policy that, that was really, really good. And he thought it was good. It was something he believed, but it was, it was new to him. And I really pushed to have him do this speech on it. And because it hadn't like, he hadn't really internalized it yet, it came across as authentic, inauthentic, even though he strongly believed it, he thought it was the right thing to do. It was an excellent policy. Um, but I got caught up in, well, we need to say this because it's good and the people will like it. And it wasn't actually internalized yet. And so it came across wrong. Um, and that's, that was a big learning lesson for me. And I'm, I'm sorry that I learned it at his expense. Um, but that, but that, I think that's to me, that's one of the biggest things is like those of us who are actually in the business need to remember is like, just because maybe it is a good idea and they believe it doesn't mean that it's the right thing for them to go out and talk about these things. So here's the thing is that that's making people so cynical is politicians um, coming out and saying things that they do believe and articulating them well. Um, but then not following through, right? There's, you know, like, and, you know, the chasm between what politicians say and what, what they actually do when they're in office, of course, um, is well known. But the cynicism has been heightened over the last two years because you had a lot of uh, premiers, um, Kenny Ford, you name it, promising to not do certain things that they then promptly did, uh, to lift certain restrictions that they, they instead um, uh, expanded. Uh, like, you know, like just to give you a random example that I know disappointed a lot of conservatives was, you know, Jason Kenney talking about the vaccine passport as, as something that, you know, he would never, he would never countenance for a whole bunch of very principled reasons and then going ahead and doing it. And, and people just simply didn't know why, why is there this big gap? And a lot of conspiracy theories that I think are nonsense about Jason Kenney proliferated as the basis of people just trying to figure out how could he say one thing and do another? 
and this is this is true for most for most leaders. And so one of the difficulties is you'll have a leader talk about something they very much care about, but the, sus- the suspicion of a lot of people is they're they're run by this machine, and despite their beliefs, they can be talked into doing different things based on polling, based on their staff, based on being managed by those who don't share those convictions. What would your response to that be? Well, I think it kind of goes back to what I just said because, I mean, I have friends who work in a lot of those offices and so I've heard some some background stories and I think people forget that again like one one can look like the other so a premier who is say lying let's just let's go most extreme let's say he was actually lying he believes that every word of his mouth is false but his people said this is what the people want based on polling right it's going to come across totally like as inauthentic as you possibly can have and it's not always different from a premier who is told, if we don't do this policy, tens of thousands of people will die. And he believes the person telling that to him, but he doesn't understand it. And he goes out and he tries to communicate that. It'll seem possibly even worse. And I believe that we've had, um, that there's been quite a bit of that in the last year, just a lot of confusion, like just from myself, kind of knowing knowing how these things get put together. I, I listen to speeches a little bit differently. And I think that we've had just a lot of people, a lot of people doubting what they know, doubting what other people know. And it even goes back to my experience as a speechwriter. Um, it's real hard to write something that you don't understand. And a part of me feels a little bit bad for all these comms people in these offices who have had to just try to get through all this information and told, you know, one day this is true and one day the next thing is true and everything's changing so fast and they're trying to write speeches for these guys and they don't know what they're writing. It's coming at them too fast. And we're supposed to go out there and say, um, you know, this and that, and this is rock solid. And I think this goes back to the, everything we've ever talked about authenticity. Some of, some of the previous had real strong moments in the past couple of years where they have admitted when they're slightly unsure or to, and i think we saw that a lot more in the beginning where the premiers came across uh, everyone was pretty happy initially and some of it was everybody was being a little bit more you know what e- even in some of the the lockdown stuff saying we're not super sure but i feel like i have to try this um and then as time went on people just got more and more entrenched and on all sides of the debate everything had to become super extreme and then once that happens, like there's there's no room for nuance, and that's, you're not going to get healthy dialogue. And as a as a speechwriter, I never liked that. If you have to just have be told, no, 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 there can't be any room for nuance here. It's not going to be good. No, and that and that's difficult because it it is. I always say that I I think that Christians have to be more responsible on how they approach things because we should only approach things with fact. Um, I, I, <laughs> I will admit a couple of times you have, you have politicians asking for empathy and it's a little bit rich when you've got Doug Ford, who's, you know, he's, you know, he's getting a big fat salary. He hasn't had to miss a day of work and, and kind of, he's asking for sympathy from people whose businesses were destroyed by policies that if, whether they're necessary or not is, is impossible to, 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 to say at this point, because everybody's just throwing competing like data sets at each other. 
But it's kind of funny because I remember thinking when I went to check out the convoy that the difficulty with applying a narrative to this convoy was that two things could be true at the same time, that politicians implemented policies that they firmly 100% believed were absolutely necessary to save many, many lives, and those same policies destroyed some lives, but neither side could admit that the other thing was true. Do you know what I mean? I know people who have died from COVID. And I know at least two people who died um, from complications with the vaccine. Um, and like those are medically affirmed cases. Um, I have a number of friends who uh, got sick with COVID and likely the vaccine kept them out of the hospital. I have some friends who were hospitalized after taking the vaccine, um, but we're told that only like one half of those things can be true right? Like if you try to have any understanding. So when, when you try to listen to someone and they're telling you their experience, I, I was trying to explain to someone, I said, anyone, anyone who comes at me really hard about the vaccines, I'm assuming someone in their family got like really sick or even died. And, and they're speaking out of personal hurt. And anybody who's coming at me really, really hard about the vaccines are horrible, the mandates are horrible and everything they probably lost their job or maybe someone ended up having a really bad reaction or like there's, there's always a reason. I think it was, I forget the exact quote, Stephen Harper said it really, really well. Like people's concerns are always legitimate because they're their concerns. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah we, we yeah. go, we go straight to, well, you're an idiot. You're stupid. You're blah, blah, blah. And like, I was, I always tell people my approach to politics and political communications it's very popular amongst many of our friends and probably many of your listeners to quote the facts, don't care about your feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's true when it comes to what's true. When it comes to politics, feelings don't care about your facts. Yep, 100%. So, so I always look at like, you can give the best speech and I'll say like, I will say this to anyone, so I don't mind saying it publicly. Conservatives, <laughs> oftentimes, like we often have so much better facts. We, we do sometimes forget about the feeling to say, but how do people feel when they hear this? Because if they don't, if they don't, if they have a negative feeling, they're not going to listen to us. Like they, and, and this is what Trudeau did really well initially. I think now just people kind of tune him out to a degree, like he is who he is and they don't really care on both sides. Um, but he just, he communicated that empathy really well when he established his career that you left with a feeling and you probably said after a rally, I like that guy. And someone would say, why? And you probably didn't know. And so I'm a little bit more on that side of, of the, 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 in politics. And this goes back new to the other question about like, how do we communicate that better? Probably a lot of that is remembering that, that when it comes to like how people feel, we don't necessarily get to navigate that just using facts. A lot of that comes through other ways that we communicate other ways that we listen to people, all of that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so now that takes us to the, the present leadership race. And I know you're limited in what you can say, so I'm just going to let you take the lead on this. Um, everybody who's listening to this knows that um, I, have, I have been a supporter of Dr. Leslie Lewis uh, since the last time she ran and in between. And as soon as the uh, race was announced, before we even had any idea Lewis was running, I wrote a column on why I think that this is um, her time as opposed to uh, Pierre Polyev and now Jean Charest and, and, and all like Patrick Brown, who's like the bad cold who won't go away. Um, and it's basically been a, trying to accrue voters by, you know, make, making a park for, for some, some, some uh, Sikh martyr on one side of town and then naming a park across town after his killer in order to get all of these different communities on board. 
Um, keep in mind, Patrick Brown's the guy who on sex ed said one thing in English and another thing in Chinese, hoping he could get away with it. And I'm sure there's probably going to be a couple of others who, who declare within the next couple of weeks. So what can you tell us about this process? And um, what can you tell us about Dr. Leslie Lewis having worked about, uh, with her in the past? First of all, uh, just great job keeping your feelings of Patrick Brown to yourself there. Um, I was quoted on the front. Page the, <laughs> I was quoted on the front page of the Toronto Star calling him a shapeshifting uh, weasel. Uh, so oh I, yeah, <laughs> I think I, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing, you know, I, it's like I always text you and say, like, you really should have opinions sometimes. <laughs> yeah. uh, nobody ever knows what you think. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like, so, so again, I keep on backing up on things, but I just like giving things context. Your your rant there about your personal feelings about Patrick Brown. Mm-hmm you feel those things, right? So you just listed off a whole bunch of things. Honestly, like I work in politics and if you said, tell me something that Patrick Brown did in his career, I have to think a minute. Like, cause I don't think about Patrick Brown that much. I haven't for, for a while. I didn't um, either until he came back. But you like, you, you care very deeply uh, about everything that, is, that has happened. And, and like, you, you know what you think about Patrick Brown. So someone can say, what do you think about Patrick Brown? And you just spit out a whole thing. Um, and so I can tell like my experience when I worked for Lesson Lewis last time, because she, she came out of nowhere, right? Like, no, I just, the first time someone said, Lesson Lewis is running. I said, mm-hmm. who's that? Right. And she went from that to winning the popular vote on the second ballot. And and again, having worked in politics, the thing that always shocked me was how when she decided to speak on something, it was that it was something she believed. And and so as like someone in media who's worked on the media side of things and done media prep and media coaching and all this stuff, I'm used to having to to provide a certain amount of information to whoever I'm working with. And I always said like she last time around, she just shocked me that when she spoke on something, it was something she believed, which means it was internalized. And so when people say they vote for her because they believe that she's authentic, I always just told them like, yep, you're absolutely right. Because that authenticity comes from someone who believes what they're saying and also knows, knows why they believe what they're saying, like about any issue. Right. Um, and she was just wildly impressive on that. Um, just everyone in everyone in politics is generally smart. There's a lot of high IQs, um, but just just getting to work with someone who 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 is wise, who who knew how to how to deal with people and, and issues that were so difficult. And, and the reason why I loved working with her in the 2020 race was, like you said, it was coming out of doing a lot of work on the anti-exploitation stuff. And it's difficult to get people to talk about hard things. And so I'd worked in politics for years and a lot of politicians are in it for the right reasons, but talking about difficult things is, is hard. Uh, and it's scary and, and it's easy. And I do the same thing when, when I'm working in politics. If you you want to fall on the, the easy things, the easy talking points, the, the phrase that pays, the <laughs> all these things. And um, it's when you find someone who is just not scared of the difficult conversations, whatever they are, 
um, that's very impressive. And, and that's why I went from being someone who didn't know who she was to being able to believe in her enough to work on that campaign so hard. Um, because yeah, the, anyone who, who says they vote for her because they're authenticity, I would just say, yeah, why I work for her, <laughs> why, why, yeah. I, why I believed in her and, and why I think she's just a phenomenal human, let alone politician. And that's sort the of thing. And so I, I hope that, that, um, like I, I always, I always hope that I learn in my career, you know, whether it was from from the experiences on the Andrew Shear campaign to everything through through the last leadership race, I want to be able to do more and more to help people communicate and and have. We're in a difficult world right now. I don't know if you noticed. Um, there's a lot of things going on, and people feel strongly about a lot. And so, um, I I hope that we have a level of bravery and not just what we're willing to talk about, but what we're willing to listen to. Um, And I think we need that in politics and we need it on, on all sides. Um, I can tell you that we sometimes get as many angry um, emails from people on the, on the right side of the party who don't want to listen to the left side as people from the left who, who don't listen to the right. And we always want to say they want us out, whoever they is and whoever us is. Um, but a lot of people, quite frankly, just, just, um, we want to be comfortable and we want to feel safe and it's scary sometimes to have conversations that are difficult. And a lot of times our, our worldviews are ironclad, right? You mentioned earlier that I have opinions, which listeners to the podcast will have noticed, but I have the same thing. I found some of the most vicious mail you actually get is from people who are purportedly on your side, who perceive you as having sold out on one thing or another because you don't share their exact position or just don't word your position the same way they would. You, you don't hate the person they hate enough. Yeah. Unless it's Patrick Brown. And, um, and so people, people will, yeah, it's difficult. And so I just, uh, yeah, I, I admire people who are better than me at listening and I strive to become more like them. And, and from someone who's in politics, if anyone wants to go into politics, my one piece of advice, like number one would be get used to being uncomfortable in a room and then, and then using what you learn. So here's, here's another, uh, another sort of interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. So looking at the leadership race right now, again, I've written multiple articles on, on why I support Leslie Lewis's bid for it. So that, like my opinion has been upfront now for, for a long time. And then everybody knows my opinions on Patrick Brown, which are um, probably not shockingly far more voluminous than the few comments I just gave you. Uh, then there's, there's, there's Jean Charest, which like, I, to be honest, like I'm aware of him as a historical figure, right? I've read about him in my readings on Canadian political history, but I don't have any strong feelings about him at all. And I suspect that's probably true for a lot of people, like based on the hostage video he put out to announce his candidacy. I suspect not even his team has particularly strong feelings about whether or not he should win. Um, and then there's Pierre Polver, who, who obviously a lot of people want to win because he's very witty. Um, he's a very good interrogator in, in the house. Um, and I know you can't comment on him a lot, but just for those listening, one of the things that, that frustrates me is he's one of these people who has abandoned what was once a very good set of values. So uh, most most listeners uh, who are familiar with the Canadian pro-life movement will have heard of uh, NCLN, National Campus Life Network. Um, if you're listening from the States, that's our version of Students for Life of America. And uh, I know from somebody who who attended with him that back as a, as a university student, um, um, Pierre went, like, would, would, was involved enough in the pro-life movement that he'd actually attend 
um, NCLN, right? He'd actually attend this, this, this conference of pro-lifers, which means you weren't just an activist. You were somebody who wanted to take it a step further because it's a, a three-day conference on, on getting trained on how to do these things. Um, earlier on, he kind of spoke about his, his, his pro-life convictions, and then they faded to the point that he votes against uh, Kathy Wagenthal's gender selection bill. He voted for the conversion therapy uh, ban both times, including the first time when 60% of conservatives voted against it. And so not speaking of him specifically, because I know you can't, um, when you see somebody go through a radical transformation of convictions, how are voters supposed to interpret that for your, for your view? And when, when, does, when is the cynical approach actually the most accurate one? I tend to take people at their word. And I think that, again, because to me, I, I, that's my approach from being on the inside is, is we have to say, like, we're responsible for what we say. And so for me, like, it, it, maybe this sounds like I'm contradicting myself at the beginning, uh, talking about how big this machine is and how unwieldy it is and how difficult it is. The fact that it's difficult isn't an excuse. So that's the challenge. The challenge of every person, the challenge for Pierre in this race, like um, he he's a phenomenally talented politician. He speaks very eloquently on uh, a ton of issues. He is quite often brave, I would say, in 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 the way that he goes out. And he he has been that way since he started in the house. Like he's not afraid of anything or anyone. Um, but like that'll be his challenge going forward is to if you're the this this guy with this big you know campaign he'll he'll need to navigate that like like everyone will um and so that's the challenge on the inside is is how can his challenge like anyone's challenge like lesson like Jean Charest like Patrick Brown anybody their challenge will be how do I communicate clearly to the people in today's world everything that we hate about social media it still is a thing. How do you do that? That's the inside challenge for the voters. Um, I think I think the main thing I learned from going back and forth inside outside of politics is you just have to take people at their word. When we we sometimes we get very tribal in politics, it's wild, um, and so it's very easy to you go. I like this person. And then they go out and they say something that you don't believe in. And as soon as we say, I like that person, we just start defending it. It's, it's what, like, I don't know, I don't know anything, including religion, that people cling to harder than a political candidate they've decided is, is right. It's, it's wild how tribal we get. Um, and that's within the party, between parties, like we get, it's, it's insane. Oh yeah, the, the Trudeau trolls are the best example of what you're talking about, right? Like they they defended everything with Jody Wilson-Raybould. Like even when you know reasonable liberal leaning commentators were like, "Okay, this wasn't great." Um, yeah, there was he a kicks a puppy. He kicks a puppy, and they all say, "Well, obviously the puppy had it coming." Yeah, exactly. Right, like immediately the puppy the puppy was the puppy was a spy. Like there's there's always a reason, and so I think that we're just like as people, we're not supposed to be like that. Um, and at the same time, and it's both. It's like you're saying about people getting mad at you because they don't hate who you hate. So let's say like if you're if if you're a huge fan of Pierre, um, the second he says something you don't love, you don't have to burn his house to the ground. You don't have to start attacking people who say they like him and say they're the awful worst people in the world. At the same time. We also shouldn't, when someone says something we like or don't like, we don't just defend them. 
for no reason because we like what they said yesterday. It's like, let's be honest, let's have conversations, let's listen to what people are actually saying. And, and so that's what I try to do as a voter. As I say, I take people for what they say um, and, and them coming across as authentic and all those things as part of that, right? I need to believe what they're saying, but at the same time, they're saying what they're saying and we shouldn't be for whoever our preferred candidate is making all sorts of excuses, that's lazy. And I can say, oh, well, my candidate, sure, I don't believe that they said the right thing here, but for these other reasons, I still, I'm gonna vote for them. And that's different than what people tend to do, which is uh, you say my candidate said a bad thing, that's impossible, everything they say is gold, and from the mouth of God, how dare you speak against them? That tends to be closer to what we do. Yeah. Uh, instead of no, listen to what they say, listen to what they promise, uh, and yes, you can measure it against their track record. Um, but the worst thing that we can do is start, is start getting tribal and making excuses for people. If someone says like the thing is, um, I, I grew up hating, I didn't like sushi, tried it a couple of times. Um, I, I don't, I didn't like it. Uh, now it's one of my favorite foods. Um, that doesn't make me a flip-flopper. Uh, it also it also doesn't mean like and I don't have to start attacking people who don't like sushi. Like that's just I it's a change in opinion. And if I have a reason for that, if I can explain it, you just say okay, that's that's who I am. We don't need to start like oh you you were dishonest with me. You were this. You were that. Just take people for who they are. Take them for what they're saying. You can measure it against their their history but do so with with like discernment and reasonableness so why uh with everything that we've just discussed should people get involved because there are a lot of people um who are extremely cynical i do, i think a lot of people have good reason to be cynical especially with regards to what happened with, with the conversion therapy ban which we discussed with uh, joe Ruba on the previous podcast so uh, maybe give people a few examples of where of where social conservatives have actually achieved uh, goals, politically speaking, and why we should get involved now. Well, the, the getting involved, what's that like? I don't know where the quote is from, like the history is won by people who show up. Yeah, um, I don't know where that's from either, but it's a great quote. Hopefully it's not like someone horrible. That we're, <laughs> looking up. we're going to some awful person in history. And yeah, exactly. We're both going yeah. to get canceled. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. History is made by people who show up. Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it is and and the thing is there's there's so much power in just being present it was brought home to me like one of my first weeks with Andrew Shear. I was supposed to like go in and just show him some speech he was about to give that was like a nothing speech it was like to some student group probably I don't know and it, it had no political weight so there I'm in I'm in his office and his like chief of staff and his top advisor were in there waiting for something else and I forget I forget what happened. Some crazy news broke. And they all, obviously, I'm just sitting in his office because I'm supposed to show him the speech and he's supposed to tell me like what sentences to cut or whatever. And um, and they started all talking. What do we do? What do we do? And the two top people had different ideas. <laughs> and they were both good ideas. And they, they couldn't pick which one. And Andrew Shear just turned to me. I don't even think he knew my name at the time. And he was just like, well, you're the third vote. We got to pick. We can't be frozen, right? So somebody's got to pick. So like, basically, I was a coin flip. And so, it, but it just reminded me, like, you can't ever be a part of decisions if you're not in the room. 
And so people will look back on even stuff in the conservative party. And again, like I'm not going to get into details, but some people get frustrated with those of us who work there, pointing out all the things that they don't like. And I can't tell you, I wish I could to say like, well, you don't, you have no idea the conversations that were happening in those rooms that maybe this thing could have happened. That thing could have happened. It's different. Like you only make a difference if you're there. And I understand when people want to just say, I'm out. That's it. I can't work with this. And I always tell people like, you only do that when you literally can't sleep at night. If you stay, because you get to pull that move once in your life and then you're gone. Like you, that, that needs to be a, a decision for you. That does not affect change in any way. And so a lot of things, like I said, it, it's about, it's also about like changing the hearts and minds of people around you. Um, like I've seen things happen years after I've had conversations with other people in the system, so to speak, right? We're able to, it's not just about like, we get really too focused on the leader says this, the leader says that everything uh, we put our like all our efforts in and 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 then there's those of us who, who are actually kind of on the inside and we're like you guys aren't seeing some of the conversations we're having that are they're changing people's minds about the value of humans about dignity and worth about things like there was there was some stuff a, a good example is uh everything that happened last year around um mind geek Right. So when I first got on the Hill, I would sometimes bring this stuff up because this is what I'm most passionate about. Yeah, MindGeek, um, explain what MindGeek is for those who don't know. MindGeek, the organization that basically owns almost all the pornography in the world, predominantly Pornhub, which is like their most like, uh, let's say, consumer friendly brand that they've pushed. It's, and it was like one of the biggest sites in the world. It has since been exposed for how much it has been profiting off of the abuse of people, off of so much non-consensual content, um, trafficking, rape, all these horrible things. Mm -hmm. And they had to delete 80% of their content over the last year. Uh, my understanding, I think you've, been, you've probably been following it closer than me, but I think they've even been trying to sell it because it went from being like their most profitable um, site out of everything they own to now all these issues. Yeah. And, and so they ended up, this all got into the mainstream media. And like, I was talking about this stuff for years. Like we were going on about this stuff, trying to talk to politicians in like 2014, 2015. And the, the first time that, um, like I actually left politics in 2015 to run Strength to Fight, which is the organization we founded, right? To, to try to speak out about this stuff. And when I, I was trying to explain this to my coworkers on Parliament Hill and they, they looked at me like I had two heads, right? Mm -hmm. Like they were just like, I don't even know what, like how, huh? How does this all work? And definitely wasn't just me. Like we had people, and people like Arnold Vierson and all the connections he made on the Hill and all the conversations. And you have all these staffers on the Hill and they're like, like, people don't necessarily see this. You have all these staffers in all these different offices who are encouraging their members of parliament they work for to, um, to look into these things. You have people who are um, meeting with MPs. And we, we, I've done this myself, like helping people know how to have these meetings, how to get, like, you can actually get a meeting with your member of parliament and say, here's an issue. I really want you to, to address it. And we were seeing this all happen for years and years. And we're seeing from the outside, nothing. Yeah. And then this all hits. And I mean, go back and watch the committee meeting with the heads of heads of Pornhub and members of parliament from every party 
are just grilling these guys. Mm-hmm. Like they went after them. I was, I was shocked at the amount of conviction and passion coming out of conservative NDP liberal MPs, just giving it to these guys and not taking a bit of guff. <laughs> and, and it was powerful. And I mean, we'll see what comes out of it as years go on. Um, but the conversations, like I can tell you, conversations that within these offices changed over time. And that comes from people who were passionate about these issues, who were not being listened to, sticking it out and continuing to have the conversations, continuing to put on events and invite survivors of trafficking to the Hill and invite MPs to these meetings and have these testimonies and all these things and, and years and years and years. And now we get people from every party or the members of parliament who are you know, like, there's a lot of politics going on. They don't tend to go public and say things they don't think might work for them politically. Being brave enough to just go strong on this. And I feel like that is, that is credit to Arnold and others on the Hill who are speaking other things, but also like all these staffers who will never know, whose names will never be in any story, but who are there having these conversations, all these people who had meetings with MPs, telling them, you need to look this up, you need to see this, hear this story, can I share this story with you? And, and that all adds up. And so when you step back, maybe it seems like nothing's happening, but if you think about it, like 2015, to 2021 was it 2020 i don't know was it 2020 or 2021 where that all really broke that's not that long in history no have a pretty big shift on an issue that really matters on on parliament hill final question then is uh to return back to the very beginning where can people find your book they can find the book at the kingsdaughter.ca that's the kingsdaughter.ca there are links uh both to amazon uh, in the States and Amazon on Canada and some other resources and things. We're going to continue to build that site out as a resource for parents and others who want to help protect kids. Um, and, and to me, like this is, it goes back to like everything that we've been talking about is just, we need to have real conversations. We need to not be afraid to have difficult conversations. And this, this is a big one, especially talking about things like abuse. Um, you and I have been in this work for a long time. And when we first started, people didn't want to hear about the word porn. And and then that started to shift. And then they started to be okay, like, all right, okay, there's pornography in the world. But they really didn't want to talk about the reality um, of abuse, and that it's as prevalent as it is. But what this book is, is it's a story of a, a princess and her, and her dad, the king. Um, and where it came from was, I was speaking to a bunch of kids about pornography. And I didn't want to talk about abuse in any way because um, it's difficult for me, especially as a dad. I was speaking to these to these youth and the part of the talk where I talk about like nothing that, that you do can change your value, your worth. Uh, you know, nothing you do can change that. You are valuable. You are all these things. And, and normally that's like when the kids look at me with all this like hope in their eyes, right? It's very encouraging. It's inspiring. It makes you feel valued. And as I said this, I saw this one girl, her eyes dropped and I realized that it wasn't something that she had done. It made her feel like she didn't have value. It was something done to her. And so I just kind of made up the story on the spot about this daughter in this kingdom. And, and she's so happy and all the, all the people are bowing to her and she asks why they bow. And the King says, well, you're the princess, like you're my daughter. And, and then throughout the story, 
all these things happen to her, her beautiful princess dress gets ripped, she gets pushed in the mud. And it's both things she does and things that people do to her that suddenly she's she's a mess and she's dirty and and her 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 you know special dress is is torn in the corner and all these things and and yet the people still bow. And so she's asking her father, like, why are they bowing? He's like, You're the princess, you're my daughter. Right. And and they go through that that whole thing and, and how that works. So that's the conversation I want dads to to have with their daughters through this book which is to to say like th- there really is nothing that anyone could do and and i hope and i hope that through the work we're doing and as we build up the website as a resource and all these other things i i hope that we can prevent um abuse from happening as people become more aware that this is this something that happens and and it doesn't mean you're a good or bad parent um horrible things happen to people and we just need to do what we can and so i hope people learn that but also it happens and and we need to be uh, we need to instill that strength that nothing and i mean it doesn't have to just be something that um specific all sorts of stuff happens to us that makes us feel like we don't have value we don't have worth um and and all of us have experienced shame in some way and we think that it that it changes who we are and i really want to help parents instill that idea in their children that that really there is nothing that can change their value and their worth. And I, I was, you know, I was brought up in a Christian home being told I was loved and God loved me and all these things. Um, I didn't understand intrinsic value until my firstborn daughter was born. And I didn't know that I could, I, it was a different kind of love than I'd ever felt, even for my wife, um, that like she was born. And if someone tried to hurt her, I would do anything yeah. for her. Um, and and the, the feelings that I feel for my choice, it's, it's different. And I, that was what made me realize what having intrinsic value actually is, how strong that truth is. And so I really want to help because uh, I, I fail at this and communicating that to my kids. I sometimes get too focused on trying to make them behave correctly and uh, above understanding how much I love them and, and the worth that they have. Um, and so it's a reminder to myself as well. Like I want to, in raising them well, in trying to raise them to be good humans, um, to never lose sight that I need to be communicating that, that worth and that value. And I want them to come and be able to tell me anything, anything, knowing that they would never change who they are in my eyes. Um, and so I, I really do hope that um, this can be a tool for parents, that it can that it can help them just have some of that language because um, it's difficult. And a lot of people grew up in homes, unfortunately, that were not uh, enforcing those values. And so we don't have the words. We, we don't like it's not it's not your fault if you've grown up in a home that, that didn't express that love and that value. Um, it didn't have that. I just hope to give people the tools and the words. Uh, yeah. And so that's the kingsdaughter.ca uh, if you want to check it out. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a conversation with my friend Josh Gilman on sexual exploitation, on politics, on the Canadian leadership race, and on his new book. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you want to check out past shows or subscribe, 
uh, to future shows. As always, head over to LifeSiteNews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can find our content wherever you like to listen to your conversations. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us again next week. Music.